Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. According to the Canadian Association of Optometrists, 2.4% of North Americans have a condition known as amblyopia, better known as lazy eye. And about 5% of children have strabismus or crossed eyes that cause their eyes to be misaligned. These conditions are sometimes hard to detect and can lead to blindness if left untreated. Today, we're going to look into this topic with Dr. Sapna Sharon, an ophthalmologist at St. Joseph's IVI Institute who specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of diseases and conditions that affect the eyes. Dr. Sharon has also studied ophthalmology across the world, completing residency at the National Academy of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, India, and fellowships at the University of Sydney, Australia, the University of Toronto, and Dalhousie University. Dr. Sharon, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So, two slightly difficult words to pronounce, but I hopefully I did it correctly. We're going to talk today about lazy eyes, which, of course, is amblyopia and crossed eyes, strabismus. So let's start, I guess, with the lazy eye. Again, I hope that, that stat, uh, my wonderful producer, Kelsey, provides me with these great stats, but 2.4% of people in North America have this lazy eye. Let's talk a little bit about what causes, first of all, the condition to have a lazy eye. Sure. So amblyopia and strabismus, they are uh, interrelated. So strabismus is a fancy term. Primarily, it means misalignment of the eyes, you know. So when both the eyes are not aligned, one eye could be turning in or turning out, turning up, turning down. So simply misalignment is called strabismus. Strabismus is seen in children and is seen in adults too. And strabismus in the layperson's language is referred to as crossed eyes or a wandering eye. So typically crossed eyes is a type of strabismus where the eye is turning in. So you find, you know, general population wants to call it crossed eyes. And we are actually referring to it as esotropia. So eso in... Greek or Latin is in, uh, so turning in of the eyes, as opposed to wandering eyes, they're typically referring to those as, we refer to them as exotropia, as exo as an out. And amblyopia, you know, the common population calls it the lazy eye. Amblyopia is when the vision in one eye or both eyes is lesser because of strabismus or because of other anatomical defects in the eye or simply because the child is born with needing a a very high power uh, lens, you know. Mm. So you could be extremely short-sighted or extremely far-sighted. So that could lead to amblyopia. It's a little confusing topic. So the strabismus itself, 
You know, the turning in or the out or the up or down of the eye could also lead to amblyopia. So amblyopia means where the vision hasn't developed. Okay. And in some cases, does that always affect just one eye or can it affect both eyes? So with strabismus, it usually affects one eye, the eye that is not aligned. Right. So typically what happens is what I explain to my patients is both eyes perceive images at the same time and the images go to the brain and the brain puts these images together. It fuses them together and that gives us depth perception. So the ability of the brain to be able to put two straight and two clear images together gives us depth perception. So the whole holy grail of strabismus and the treatment of strabismus finally ends also, yes, to vision loss. But at the end of the day, we get 3D vision only when we have two straight eyes, otherwise not. And to answer your second uh, question, so that is amblyopia in one eye, but let's say a baby is born with bilateral cataracts, which get missed, or a baby is born with the need for glasses or a small corneal um, dystrophy, all these, because the media is not clear, could lead to amblyopia, so bilateral amblyopia. You could also have bilateral amblyopia because of these causes. So is it fair to say then that sometimes the condition is obvious and sometimes the symptoms aren't visible? Absolutely. So that brings us to when a child is brought in with strabismus, you know, with misalignment, these amblyopias are picked up early because parents see them, pediatricians and family doctors see them and family uh, members see them. So that vision loss is picked much earlier than when you have two straight eyes, but the child's not seeing well. So people think, oh, okay, you know, Johnny is bumping into stuff. He's tripping over. He has no interest in watching TV or Billy's development is slow, you know. So they start getting investigated. And then we realize, oh, this child doesn't see and without any strabismus. So some, I guess, would be, as you said, are visible and and would be caught in, in normal situation. I mean, should parents have their child? Is there some sort of special eye exam that needs to be done at an early age? So in an ideal world, yes. Mm. You know, we do have screening programs at school and in the community. And it's always very safe to get the children screened. That would be very, very safe because often, you know, children come to us for other things that, you know, something like a blocked tear duct or allergies or the parents are just, they just want to have a baseline eye exam because they have an older child who was born with eye disorders. And then we find, oh, lo and behold, this child should have been seen. And sometimes they've come early and sometimes they've actually come quite late. Are there consequences of not catching it at a young age? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because the period of visual development in children is the first seven to eight years of life. I see. So I, again, that's how I, expl- I explain to my patients is, it's like baking a cake. You know, you've put it in the oven and it's almost baked. And then you decide, oh, I need to do that. That doesn't help. So mm. it's done. It's baked. So the younger the child, the easiest is it to improve the vision. And the older they are, sometimes they've missed the boat, you know, they're nine, 10, and you really can't go and change the vision. Wow. So at that point... The treatment options, there are no treatment options? No, none. Wow. It's sad. 
it's it's very sad. And these are all very easy to treat, you know. And we'll we'll talk about some of the I think the the medical aspects, but I think also it it, it strikes me that having a lazy eye or crossed eyes, there's a kind of a obviously a psychological cost to that, right? There's a, a sort of a, a social stigma in that people look at someone like that and think, oh, they're not that smart or it's funny. That sort of stigma, that must be um, a big aspect of it. There are so many studies done on quality of life for strabismus patients, adults and children. You know, we, we all know it. It's, it's kind of sad, but it's the, the white elephant in the room, you know? People with misaligned eyes are not treated equal. So historically, ESO, so when the eyes turned in, is generally associated with being sub-intelligent, you know, yeah. not as smart. And eyes that deviate out, so EXO, somehow, for whatever reason in society, associated with being mean, being evil. So if you look at movies, you know, Hollywood movies and plays, they would have someone with their eyes out or whatever, you know. So it is very sad. And uh, so that's why when we teach medical students and residents and fellows, and when they refer to these as cosmesis, uh, that is cosmetically also, you know, so one of the other advantages of treating these, and I always tell them, and that's how I was taught, that this is not cosmetic. Cosmesis is when you don't like the shape of your nose, you know, we are supposed to have straight eyes. So we don't call the call it cosmesis, you know, we just call it reconstructive, you know. So reconstructive, where you're supposed to have straight eyes and you need straight eyes. So yes, you're very right. It touches a very raw chord, you know, with our patients. We have very, very delighted and happy patients, you know, it, even with the adults, the adult population that I treat. Almost every clinic, adult clinic of mine, I have a patient literally sobbing, you know, crying before the surgery and after the surgery. Parents, uh, emotional. It's very, very emotional. And the need to catch it early. So that applies for both the lazy eye and the crossed eyes. Is that Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They're both interchangeable terms, you know. I see. Yeah, they, they both lead to each other. It's a little slightly complicated, but yes, they go hand in hand. So strabismus causes amblyopia. Okay. But amblyopia is also caused by other factors. Okay. What are some of the factors that might cause it? So high refractive errors could do that. So as I explained, you know, you could have a child with farsightedness or myopia, short-sightedness, that could do that. You could have a child with media opacities, you know, with sort of cataracts in the eye. Sometimes they right. could be non-surgical and uh, the whole cataract doesn't need to be operated. But yes, you know, the whole whole thing does. So anything which impairs the brain from learning to see at the right age right. can cause bilateral amblyopia. So this could be like a neurological condition. It could be stroke. You or... could have, yes, you could have a child born with the slightly smaller optic nerves. You know, on a cursory exam, it looks good. But then when we start looking for the reason for the lesser than normal vision in the child, and then when you look carefully and get investigated, and then we see, oh, the optic nerve is just a little smaller. And that itself leads to amblyopia. What are some of the signs that parents should be aware of? That's a very good question, actually. So when you have a child who is not interested in TV, you know, where all the other siblings and friends are glued onto the TV, and this child is 
busy doing something up close, that is something that needs to be checked. If you have a child who's watching TV from like, you know, six inches away, that is another sign. Or any sort of a compensatory or anomalous head posturing, you know, let's say a child has a tilt or a face turn, any sort of a head posturing, a chin down or a chin up, head tilting to the right or left, or the face turn to the right or left, all these are suspicious red flags and they must be investigated. Usually, I would think about 85% of the time, they are related to strabismus or poor vision. Even if it's not strabismus, their vision is poor. They need glasses. So basically, you know, it's a smart brain and the brain is trying to figure out, let me tilt, let me turn and try to figure out what posture gives me the most clear vision possible. So that's a child really struggling to see. Right. So let's talk a bit more then about treatment. So if we've successfully diagnosed someone and a child is in there at a a young age for either of these, uh, for both conditions or the same condition, what kind of treatment is it? Surgical or? So typically, uh, strabismus is treated with that three steps. So we look at if they need glasses, then we give them glasses. And in certain varieties of strabismus, the glasses itself can collapse the turn. And these are called accommodative esotropia. It's a bit of too much information, but yes, there are. So typically about, you know, 10, 15 different types of strabismus where this is the very basic one. You give them glasses and the eye straightens out. We need to patch if the vision has really decreased quite a bit. Then the child needs to start patching the good eye to force the brain to use the poor eye. So in the blueprint of the brain, the brain always likes to take it easy. Trying to put two images together is a lot of a higher function for the brain. Hmm. So, you know, the brain is the master blaster of the body and is responsible for the beating of the heart and the pumping of the lungs and the, you know, the basic stuff. So binocular vision, both eyes perceive images at the same time. And then these images through the optic nerve are sent to the brain, the occipital cortex, which is the visual cortex. And that is where these two images are put together And putting them together gives us binocular vision, which leads to 3D vision, stereopsis. So the whole holy grail of having two eyes next to each other is actually binocular vision. And binocular vision gives rise to 3D vision or stereopsis, or what we call in a layman's language is depth perception. So that is what we refer to as binocular vision. So the the precursor, You cannot have any depth perception or 3D vision without binocular vision. So binocular vision using both the eyes together is a bit of a higher function. Mm. So the brain is always looking for an excuse that, oh, oh, okay, one image coming is straight. The other little blurry turned out, ah, forget it. I don't want to put this image together. It's too much of energy and more work for the brain. So the brain is, in, in its blueprint, gives up the eye that's, misaligned. It just gives it up totally. Hmm. And that's where the term lazy comes from. So the brain stopped using that eye and just uses the good eye. And that's how it is. So when we patch the good eye, we are forcing, you know, it's like whipping the brain. You have to use the weaker eye. So depending on the, the amount of vision loss, we get the children to patch an hour or, you know, three to four hours a day but every day, and that improves the vision of the eye. 
And then the uh, third next step is to surgically straighten the eye. Okay. That's right. And how, how long would a child have to wear? You said just an hour or so per day, but are we talking months, years? How long would that treatment? Typically uh, two, three years, you oh, know, okay. typically in my practice, you know. So the moment you have the vision that has improved in the weaker eye and you have surgically aligned the eyes and they are on the right path and you have documented binocular vision and 3D vision, you know, the child's doing well and they're a bit older, then we stop it. But sometimes when the disparity between the two eyes is very large, you know, significantly quite dramatic, then they have to patch longer, much longer. A typical example could be a child born with a unilateral congenital cataract. So this is the extreme example of patching where the child actually patches several hours a day, half their waking hours for at least 10, 11 years of their life. Wow. Yeah, a lot of patching. But there are a lot of success stories. They do very well. But patching is important. And can you talk a bit more about surgical intervention then? What does that involve? How successful is it? What are you doing? Are you cutting? Are you strengthening? Are you tightening? It's very successful. In younger children, they lose 3D vision, you know, or they haven't developed 3D vision. And in older children, the older you grow, the ability of the brain to suppress the second image goes away. So these children and adults complain of double vision. They'll actually see two, two images, two moms, Mm. two dads, two TVs. So you can imagine how risky that is, you know, falling and tripping. So the surgery is very good and our success rates are very high, you know, Mm -hmm. 90 to 95 percent. Okay. Some children may need, you know, multiple surgeries to straighten them. But it's an eye muscle surgery where we weaken or tighten muscles, typically a day surgery and done under general anesthesia. And has a good recovery period. Typically, children are back to school in a week. They don't patch the eyes. They put antibiotic and steroid drops in their eyes for about a week. It's immensely giving, you know. It's a very, so apart from the visual aspect, even, you know, as I said, reconstructively or aesthetically, it's a very giving surgery. So we have six extraocular muscles in the eye, which move the eyes in different directions. And because the eyes move together, Every muscle has a helper muscle in the eye and an antagonist in the eye. And every muscle has a helper in the other eye and an antagonist in the other eye. And based on our clinical measurements in the clinic of the misalignment in all different gazes, you know, so we primarily divide our gaze, our visual field into nine parts. And based on the patterns and and how they measure, we decide on weakening and tightening these six muscles. So it's a play of these six muscles in each eye that we work on. So the most common surgeries that we do, you know, muscle surgeries are strengthening, so tightening and weakening. When we weaken, what we're actually doing is moving the muscle a calculated amount further away from its insertion. And these are based on the clinical measurements. And to tighten, we actually make the muscle shorter by cutting off a chunk of it and reattaching the muscle. That's what we do. But there are different other surgeries too. But the bread and butter are these, the weakening and tightening. We call them recession and resections. You know, I feel I stumbled onto this in life, but I couldn't think of another life where I was doing some other sort of surgery, you know. So you see the real, a real positive change in, in a young person's, their whole Absolutely. lifestyle, their, their Absolutely. attitude, everything. Absolutely. The whole family celebrates it. And the, what, though, are the dangers of not treating it? 
So the eye that is misaligned loses vision. Often we see them with very, very poor vision and legally blind eyes. Mm. So that, and when you don't have two straight eyes, then, you know, you have no 3D vision. Your stereo vision is just not there. And can it degenerate into total or partial blindness at some point or no? Yeah. So when that eye is not being used at all, either the vision can just stay stable at where they are left or can deteriorate a little bit more. So the misaligned eye can actually have varying amounts of poor vision, you know, could be really, really poor or could be a little poor. But we get lots of them with even the beginning vision that is legally blind vision. But for an adult with this condition, as you said earlier, often then there are few treatment options, correct? For someone, let's say, who's lived with this and is now 35 years old or 40 years old? So we are coming to slightly complicated ophthalmology there. Okay. So it's like the shape of the nose. Some of us are born with a very average looking nose and Mm -hmm. some very aesthetically appealing. So similarly, the potential for binocular vision is different. Everyone is not 10 out of 10. So patients, so children who later grow up to be adults, if their potential for binocular vision is still very good, these adults after surgery still do quite well. Oh, okay. Yeah, they still do quite well, but not as well as they could have done as a, a younger child. Also with adults, they have had some surgeries in their childhood, And then nothing for several years. And then they come to us at 40 or 50 because they're beginning to see double. Mm. So that's when they come to us. The chunk of the adult patients that we get from optometrists are typically because of double vision. You mentioned that sometimes patients who've had the procedure done or had it corrected at a young age come back as they get older. What's happening there? Is the procedure reversing itself? Yeah, it can. Sometimes it can reverse and sometimes you just need to tweak it more. And it's not just the muscles, but it's also the brain. It's like having a child who, you know, not interested in tidy up and things like that. You need to be after them. So that's what it is. You sometimes just need to go and force the brain. So you re-straighten the eye and force the brain to start using binocular vision. And I I suppose in some cases, though, you you were mentioning that some of the more serious causes of it. I mean, it could be a a sign that there are some sort of a, like a vascular problem, correct? Or is it a possibly a thyroid condition? I mean, it might lead to diagnosis of other problems. So with children, you know, you could see a misaligned eye. And then when we dilate the eye and have a look at the back, you could have big chunks of the eye missing, you know, the big chunks of the retina missing, the nerve is missing. So a lot of things, a lot of congenital anomalies, there could be scars in the retina in the back of the eye. So there are many reasons the vision is poor and therefore the eye has misaligned. And in adults, yes, there there are many different causes for strabismus in adults. Even though misalignment, which is the basic term, you know, strabismus, but the pathology for children and adults is often very different. Adults get misaligned eyes and double vision because of a lot of strokes, you know. Mm. They're, they're different cranial nerves, you know. We have the third. So we number them. You know, we have 12 cranial nerves and they're typically numbered one, two, three, four. So typically what we see are the third, fourth, and sixth cranial nerves, palsies. You could have myasthenia gravis. You could have Graves' disease, which is related to thyroid. Or you could have 
latent strabismus of childhood, which begins to manifest in adulthood, resulting in double vision. So it's a slightly different clinical picture in adults, but the basic treatment is the same, is strabismus surgery. Similar surgery is where we do a carpenter's job. You know, we align the eyes. That's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like carpentry. It's just like building a deck. Are there physical exercises a child can do to help improve the situation? Yes, for for small amplitude of exotropias where the eye drifts out, where the angle is so small that it can't really be operated on, we actually give them exercises where they try to converge their eyes. But that's a very passing thing. And once it grows and it worsens, then they need surgery. Well, it's fascinating. So, and again, maybe we should end with... Parents who suspect a situation with a child or seeing something or they're seeing behavior, the recommendation is what? Get them to an optometrist first step? Yes, absolutely. Get them seen. And then we have a wonderful network of optometrists in Canada and, you know, where we practice uh, in London and Southern Ontario. We have excellent optometrists, you know, and they refer to us. And based on the urgency, we triage them and see them. Yeah. So the first step, yes. In fact, I feel if parents are suspicious, they shouldn't even wait to go see their pediatrician. You know, they can make an appointment with the optometrist. Right, right. They probably know sort of instinctively using Absolutely. the parent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating topic. And uh, I, I was particularly touched though by your saying how joyful the results can be when these conditions are solved. That's, uh, that's heartening to hear. Very, very. It's very emotional, you know. And the results are almost instantaneous. You can see the results in in the recovery. Well, Dr. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today and shedding some light, opening our eyes, so to speak, couldn't avoid that one, on these conditions. So uh, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Ian. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. Or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.